You're listening to Jesus is Everything, the teaching ministry of The Way, Eugene. Mark chapter 6 this evening, and we'll we'll start out in verse uh, 17 and jump into this. Like I said on Sunday, it's kind of a weird little interlude here that this story about John the Baptist and, and how it was that he came to, to his death, to his end, um, it's sandwiched in between some really cool things about Jesus and, and Jesus sending out his apostles and them going out two by two like we studied last week. And then we're going to jump into him doing some just three really, uh, really punchy, important stories. Jesus feeds 5,000 people with, you know, two fish and five loaves of bread, the miracle of feeding the 5,000. Then we're going to get the story of Jesus walking on the water. And then Jesus heals more sick people, right? And, and they're all just reaching out and touching his garments and being healed. But there's this in-between little, little interlude here talking about John the Baptist. And I just want to reiterate that when we read scripture, um, there's, there's, really, there's really two components that we're trying to draw from it. When we read the Bible and we study it, there's two things we're trying to figure out. Number one, what we believe, what, what is actually true. And the other part is, how do we live that truth out? That's what we're trying to accomplish. And so those two things... Um, oftentimes wrestle against each other, right? And I think in the examples that we see of Jesus sending his disciples out as apostles with the message of the good news of the gospel, that's, that's the practice part. That's what we do with our faith. But I think John's story here reiterates something about what we're supposed to believe and how we're supposed to think about our relationship to the Lord. And, and I think that's why the author of scripture here puts it in between these stories. That's just my conjecture. That's just how I read it to go, why is this funny little story about John in the middle of all of Jesus's miracles? I think it's to remind us about the, the balance between what we believe and then how we practice what we believe. That's what I think. But we jump in here in verse, let's pick up in verse 16. Herod is the king over the region and... According to what he says here, he had put John the Baptist to death by beheading. And in verse 16 it says, But when Herod heard of it, he said, John whom I beheaded has been raised. And he's thinking that Jesus, who's doing miracles and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, he's thinking this is John the Baptist resurrected. That's what he's thinking. And there's been all kinds of other ideas thrown out there. He's Elijah, he's a prophet, all these kinds of things. But Herod's like, it must be John. But I killed John, so how can that be so? And in verse 17, it goes on and begins to explain why King Herod executed John the Baptist. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. So here we have that strange, immoral relationship of Herod as the king taking his brother's wife, while she's still his brother's wife, for his own wife. Obviously that's immoral that doesn't match up with God's law which says one man one woman in marriage together. That's the way God designed it to work. And then it goes on in verse 18 it further explains why Herod was was in this position of of arresting John and and then ultimately beheading him. For John had been saying to Herod, "It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife." So John is taking a stance on something moral. 
He's making a moral statement and saying, whatever you're doing, Herod, that's wrong. And obviously he's making that as a public declaration because Herod hears about it. It's, it's become an obvious thing. And verse 19 says, And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. And this is where it gets interesting. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. So even though John the Baptist is saying things in opposition to Herod, and he's taking a stance morally saying, you can't have your brother's wife. That's not the way that relationship's supposed to work. He's making a public declaration of it. And of course, that's causing problems for Herod at home. His wife at home is like, we, we need to do something about this. This is causing a problem, right? That's causing a problem for Herod, right, men? If our wives are having a problem, it's our problem too. That's just the way things go. And so this is happening for Herod. But Herod fears John, and he knows that he's righteous and a holy man. And so Herod is doing whatever he can to keep John the Baptist safe. Look at the next sentence. When he heard him, meaning when Herod listened to John, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. I want to just stop and think about that for a second. Because I think we find it true in our world today, and obviously back then, that people who are in positions of authority, they recognize other authority, and they're intrigued by it, and they respect it. In the sense that when you see someone who's at the, at the top of their game, so to speak, they're, they're the top of the top, oftentimes they only relate to and respect other people who are at the top of their game, Right? So like back, I think back to the Cold War and obviously with, with what we see going on politically, th there's shades of this going on. But I remember uh, a comment by Ronald Reagan in the 80s that in the midst of the Cold War, the USSR, the Soviet Republic against America and the nuclear threat and all the tension that was going on, it was revealed later on that Reagan and Gorbachev, right, the leader of the USSR and the President of the United States at that time, had communication with each other privately because in the midst of that political tension and military militaristic tension, they were the only ones that could understand the pressure that the other was under. They were the only ones that they could actually relate to and have a conversation about what was going on while they're also supposed to be navigating all these political waters. Because why? They were at the top. They were in charge. They're the ones who had authority. And I think we see here Herod recognizing in John the Baptist that he has some sort of authority or at the very least knowledge or power in his position, what he's talking about, that intrigues him. And it catches him to, his, to a place where he's just like, I know the wife at home wants to get this guy out of the picture because he's causing problems for us, but there's something about what he's saying. And that's what I want to key in on. There's something about what John the Baptist was saying that intrigued even the person who was guilty of sin, right? I'm not sure if you've ever had the experience of someone who's like definitely not a follower of Jesus, not a Christian, but is so interested and intrigued by what it is that we believe as Jesus followers. They're really curious about like, really? You guys go to church every, really? Really? You actually believe what the Bible says? Like, there's this curiosity. And in fact, I think the word that's used here for Herod when he listens to John, I think this is a fitting word. 
oftentimes people who are not a part of the faith haven't been trained how to follow Jesus. When they look at a Jesus follower, they're perplexed. They're confused as to why we're getting, why are you guys singing songs about Jesus? They're not even that great of songs. It's not like the Rolling Stones or like the Bia. Like, they're not even that great. What are you doing with that, right? Like, there's, I've run, I talk to people about these things. They're like, yeah, the music's just kind of sappy. It's not very good. And like, why are people crying at church? And like, why did you guys get together? And like, how come everybody's hugging and all these kinds of things, right? And so to, to follow Jesus oftentimes can look perplexing, but at the same time, it's intriguing. It's intriguing. And I think even though Herod was engaged in sinful, morally corrupt behavior, he sort of saw what John the Baptist was saying and doing, and it caught him in a way, and it intrigued him, and he wanted to protect him. See, there's something about people who who live with conviction, I'll say, that it's intriguing, right? People who live boldly or audaciously, right? They live really like big personalities. That's what catches our attention a lot of times. All we have to do is look at culture, and all we have to do is look at trends in culture. I, I go from the perspective of like musical styles or, or you know, uh, fashion styles. Why do those things change over time, right? Styles change, preferences change. Why? Because something comes on the scene and it's bold and it's a, it's a statement of some kind. Again, child of the 80s and 90s, fluorescent colors, right? When fluorescence became a thing, lime green and, you know, the hypercolor t-shirts and all the different crazy, you know, things that came out of the 80s and the excesses of that age. Why were those things popular? Because they made a bold statement. It was like, look at me, I'm here, right? That's, that's how that stuff works. And I think that stuff catches our attention. And I think the same thing is true with people, right? Bold people who make big statements, they attract attention, But the thing about that is, for any one thing, whether it's a style or a person or a trend or whatever the case might be, that comes out with a bold statement of some kind, there has to be something that there, there has to be something of substance to them or it, or else it's just going to fade away with the rest of the trends from last year, right? And I think a guy like John the Baptist came onto the scene and had such a bold presence and a bold statement that he was making. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's making this statement that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one that God has sent to bring us into relationship with God. But here's the thing. He wasn't just making bold declarations that he couldn't back it back up at all. There was substance to what he was saying. And I think that's the key. I think in our faith, as we look at John, he's a model for us in those two ways that we have to uh, have those two aspects go together. We have to have behavior, action, that corresponds with our beliefs and the teachings of Jesus. We have to be able to live out our faith and do things that are in alignment with what God's will is for us. So that's where James 2 comes into the picture and says that we uh, we have this faith that works. The 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 product of our faith is good works, right? Like you could look at a person and see what they're doing and going, they claim to be a Christian and their life actually matches up with what it means to be a Christian. That's what James 2 teaches. 
Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 teaches this as well. Jesus says that you can tell a tree by its fruit. Now we live in a world where, man, we're told you can't judge anybody. You can't tell anybody whether they're right or wrong because everybody's got their own thing going on. But the truth is, Jesus says you could look at a tree and tell by the fruit that it produces whether it's a good tree or a bad tree. And the desire of the follower of, of Jesus, a, a disciple of Jesus, is to be producing good fruit. And so we have to have action. We have to have activity in our life that matches up with Jesus's example, with John the Baptist's example, with the teachings of the apostles throughout the New Testament and what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. But I think we also not just have action and activity in our life, we also have to have substance behind it. Otherwise, we're just going to fade out. And the things that we're doing, we'll get bored with and they'll just fall by the wayside. We have to have substance behind it. And so while we have to have activity, we also have to have a framework by which we understand why we're doing what we're doing. And another way to say that is that we have to have a philosophy at work. We have to understand the reasons why we believe who Jesus says he is. We have to have a reason why and be able to articulate the reason why we, we have this relationship and love so much that we want to sing songs to Jesus and tell him how great he is. We should have a philosophy that we can express to someone to explain why we are gathering together and studying about Jesus. That philosophy has to be in place and, and has to be balanced with our activity. The truth is, we have to have both of those. Now, there's a concern perhaps when we hear the word philosophy uh, in, in Scripture. Mark down Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, the word philosophy appears in the Scripture. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul talks about this. We'll look at verse 6 first. Colossians 2, 6, Paul says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This is where we get the idea of walking with Jesus. When we talk about the Christian faith, we talk about it like we're walking along with Jesus. And while we do that, we're always thankful. And then verse 8, the warning comes from Paul. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elementary spirits of the world and not according to christ see i've been in places where they've taught that um philosophy was almost a dirty word like like philosophy you know like plato and aristotle and deep thinkers and guys who who you know sit there and gaze at their navels and try and figure out the mysteries of the universe right that kind of a deal well, there's a difference here. If we're talking about what Paul says, uh, philosophy that, it, that is in accord with human tradition, according to the elementary uh, elements of the world, then yeah, that kind of philosophy is garbage. Humanist philosophy always puts mankind at the center, right? So, so a humanist philosophy that doesn't measure up with who Jesus is or what God's teaching is, puts man at the center of everything and then tries to interpret everything in the world, relationships, the meaning of life, uh, pleasure, all of those things is centered on the individual. 
And as long as the individual can figure out how to make themselves happy and make themselves pleased with life, that's a humanist philosophy. And that doesn't accord with what God established. In fact, that humanist philosophy, putting mankind at the center, goes back to the Garden of, e- Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. The first sin had to do with that temptation to put mankind, man or woman, at the center. I want what I want, even though God has already told me he's got a good plan for me, he's provided for me, all of those things. No, I have something I want. And so I'll put my cent- myself at the center of my world rather than God at the center of everything. And then I just revolve around him. It's a funny, you know, you use certain phrases in school with the kiddos and they laugh. Some of them make sense, some of them don't. But that, that phrase like, do you think the world revolves around you? I've used that in class and kids are like, my dad says that all the time. I'm like, yeah, we're, we're here, we're on the same team, me and your dad. Yeah, whether you're at home or school, no, the world does not revolve around you. But that's that concept and that's actually a humanist philosophy of like, man, the world revolves around me versus an idea that says God is at the center of everything and, and everything else in the universe simply revolves around him and is related to and connected to how he wants things to be. And we can either go with the flow of what God wants us to be and to do, or we can try and swim against that tide and end up just wrecked because that's what happens. And so there's this balance in the Christian life of needing to have um, a philosophy that we can express what we believe. John was able to do that. John the Baptist was able to say, hey, you're not supposed to have your husband's wife. That doesn't work with God's philosophy. It doesn't work with who God is. And so he's able to express and speak out the things that he believes. He's also able to live those things out. He's out there proclaiming that Jesus is the king, that Jesus is the Messiah. And so for us as disciples, we have to be able to do both of those things. To have good philosophy, we're rooted in the idea, perhaps like scripture says, taste and see that the Lord, he is good. That's a philosophical position. That's a framework that we can work from so that we can explain why we do what we do. It's because we know that God is good. Sat with a friend yesterday and he's struggling with some serious things in his life. But his issue is, I believe in God. I even believe that God is good, but I don't believe that God can be good to me because I've done too many bad things. That's his struggle right now. Doesn't know if he can trust that God is going to be good to him because somehow he sinned too much. You and I have to be able to have a framework that we could work from to be able to explain to that person, no, 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 God is good regardless of what we've done. There's nothing, the Bible says, that can separate us from the love of God through Christ Jesus. That's a philosophy. We have to be able to express that. That also has to be balanced with read the book, do the stuff, right? I love that statement. Read the book, do the stuff. But we got to be able to do both. See, what happens is typically in our formation spiritually, depending on where we came from, we do one or the other. I've had seasons of my life where it was all about doing the stuff for God, right? Action, activity, right? It was all about do, 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 do. Thinking somehow that that's what made my faith real. 
And in some ways it did. But at those times in my life, I wasn't always able to explain why I was doing stuff. But I've also had seasons of my life where all I did was stick my nose in books and try and read as much theology as I could and understand all the big ideas. But there was no follow through in my actual walk with Jesus. And so those things have to be balanced. We have to have the philosophy that places God at the center of everything and be able to explain why we do what we do. But then we also got to do stuff. We got to follow Jesus's instructions and go make disciples even while we are being discipled. Like that's the mission. That's what we're called to do. And so we want to make sure that we avoid what, what John talks about or what Paul talks about there, you know, the elementary principles of the world. If our philosophy and our way of understanding things has anything to do with the elementary principles of the world, those things are things like greed, lust, or selfishness. If, if that's what's inspiring us or influencing how we do what we do, boy, that's a checkpoint. That's a moment we got to stop and check. You know, mark down 1 John. 1 John is a reference point. This is a convicting statement, and it's, man, it's a hard one because there's so many nuances that we can pull out of this. But John the Apostle writes to the church in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. That's a pretty convicting statement. Because from our perspective as humans, the only thing that we can really see around us are things of the world, and they're very tempting. And a lot of them were created for our pleasure and were created for our good. But there's a difference, there's a line that crosses over where the difference being God at the center and us using all of the things that God has given us in the world to simply worship him more with versus us at the center using all of the things that God created so that we get what we want and that we receive pleasure. That's, that's the difference. So Paul warns, or John warns us, pardon me, not to love the world. That would be a humanist, very selfish, elementary principle to be in love with the things of the world rather than in love with the Lord. Versus, I want to show you the contrast here, versus what Peter would say in 2 Peter, and I'll read it to you, you don't have to be flipping around everywhere, but 2 Peter chapter 1 This is what Peter says that, that we should be pursuing in terms of, of godly principles versus worldly principles or elementary principles. He talks about God and his divine power in verse 3 that has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. And verse 5 says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. 
He says, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective, and mark this, or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we're to be a good tree producing good fruit, we read the book and we do the stuff, and we want to look more and more like Jesus and put God at the center of everything. This is what Peter says. These are the, these are the elements. These are the principles that we need to base our life upon. We start with faith. It's this submission to Jesus. Give your life to Jesus. Place your faith in him. And then it's virtue. Virtue just means excellence, that we pursue excellence in all things. When we're called to be holy like the Lord God is holy, holy simply means that God is set apart. He is different. He is more excellent than everything else in the world. We're called to that same excellence to pursue that faith and virtue. And when we pursue that excellence, we add to that knowledge of the Lord. That's where our time in the word becomes critical. And then as we know what God has called us to do and what he has warned us to stay away from, self-control. Through the, through the grace he gives us in the Holy Spirit, man, we keep ourselves away from temptations, things that would trip us up and then put us back at the center rather than God being at the center. And then with that self-control, steadfastness. I love that word. It's one that I find to be needful in our culture, people that are steadfast. There's another word that is similar. It's a synonym, people who are stalwart. That's a great word. I love that. It gives me the image of like a mighty oak tree, right? That's just solid and it's big and it's strong and nothing can knock it down. I, I, I see a need for that in our culture. Men and women who are stalwart, they're strong, they're grounded, they're rooted deeply in the Lord and nothing shakes them. These are the kinds of things that Peter would say, this is going to help us be rooted and establish our walk with the Lord. Now, Back to Mark's gospel, chapter 6. We go through the rest of this story, and there's a couple other points to make about how all of it pans out in the end. Verse 21 says, But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. So Herod's got all the bigwigs at a big dinner, a big banquet. And in verse 22 says, For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, this is Herod's brother's daughter, his niece, in other words, but now his stepdaughter, if you will. When Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. In the language here, it sounds pretty innocent. She came in and danced and everybody was happy. When you go back to the original language, there's a very seductive undertone here in terms that she was dancing in a, in a very sexual way, trying to please the men, if you, if you catch my drift, not to, trying to be vulgar there. But that was the idea, is that she was revealing herself to the men in a way that they found her pleasing to the eye. And it, the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish and I will give it to you. Let's be honest, men are dumb, men are easily swayed, there doesn't take much to, to get a man to give up his kingdom at this point. He says, you can have anything up to the half of my kingdom here simply because he watched some young girl dancing. That's pretty lame. That's a good warning for us that we should have more integrity than that. And in verse 23, he, he vowed to her, whatever you ask, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. 
In verse 24, and she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? Remember, Herodias, mom's the one who's orchestrating this whole thing. And she said, the head of John the Baptist. She's found a workaround. She wants John dead because John's causing problems for her and her adulterous husband here, King Herod. And Herodias wants him out of the picture. Herod likes her. Or Herod likes John, loves listening to what he has to say. He's intrigued by him. But the wife wants him gone. She finds a workaround, sends her daughter in, gets the husband to, to commit to anything she asks for. Then verse 25, and she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Two things. The first, the the activity of Herod's wife, Herodias, and her daughter, there's a real practical, practical application to this. When you read through the book of Proverbs. There's a large majority of the book of Proverbs, specifically of Solomon, that offer wisdom to men specifically. It's not that women can't use this, this wisdom, but it's for men specifically because of what I joked about earlier. Men are dumb. We're easy marks. Let's just be honest about it. We're very base in nature. It doesn't take much to get us excited about things, right? Certain things. And, and all that to say, much of the Proverbs is a warning for men, from a father to a son, asking them to use wisdom and to not be attracted or, or seduced by, and there's various names for it, the strange woman, the, the tempting woman, or the seductress. It's, it's very clear that within the Proverbs, the wisdom of God for men would be Stay away from those things that are sexually tempting. There's an order that God has created. Enjoy the order that God has created things in, a husband and a wife. The Hebrews chapter 12 even says the marriage bed is undefiled. It is holy to the Lord. That's the structure for that relationship. Apart from that, the warning of Proverbs or the wisdom of Proverbs is young men, old men, everybody else in between, uh, the point being the warning for all men of all ages is to not give in to the temptation of that woman because the bed of that woman, a representation for an engagement in that temptation sexually, that bed, that road leads to death is what Proverbs would tell us. And how true that is, how many relationships have been destroyed, how many lives have been consumed because of the temptation of the flesh. And that's 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 this scene here as John the Baptist is being is being arrested and then ultimately put to death, boy, it's, it's related to that idea of the seductress, of that temptation of the flesh. Herod, even though he liked what John was saying, was intrigued by it, like he was interested in it and, and he listened to him, how easily he was swayed away from that path toward righteousness, the message that would have led him to Jesus. He was sidetracked by some young thing, Right? How sad that is and how sad that is for our culture that that is, uh, even as it was here in that day, it was acceptable. And so it's a warning for us as men. And I feel like that's a message for us 
at a really, really critical point in history, um, as uncomfortable as it is to talk about these things, you, you know, pornography and the sexualization of all of media and culture from music to movies to Instagram accounts to everything, like, like it's so prevalent and so accepted. Boy, we as men choosing to follow after Jesus and model ourselves after that type of holiness, man, we need to be encouraged and built up to hear that message that we need to be steadfast. We need to be stalwart, right? We need to take a stand and be rooted deeply into the truth that this is God's world and everything revolves around him. Our pleasure in the things that we want are not the center of our sphere. That's not how our life should revolve. God and his moral law, what he has called us to, should be the center point for those things. And it's, it's a hard message and it's a hard thing, but it's the right thing. The last thing I'll say here about Herod and, and this scene here. As I read through scripture, whether it's Herod here in this scene or even Pilate later on at, at the trial of Jesus, where he sort of washes his hands and gives Jesus over to the Jewish leaders and they're going to crucify him. I kind of have a soft spot for the bad guy in the story. I'm not sure if you've ever been like that, where like the character in the story or the movie or whatnot, you kind of like, you look at the bad guy and you're like, you're kind of just a product of your circumstances. It's not even that maybe you're that bad. You were just in a bad spot and you got caught. I sort of have a soft spot for Herod here. It's obvious he liked John. He loved what he was saying and was intrigued by it, but he kind of got shoehorned or like cornered into this spot that he couldn't get out of. And I feel bad for him. And in the description of it, it says the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. Meaning that if all the other bigwigs in the room hadn't been there, if he wasn't in front of all of his friends trying to put on a good show and impress his friends, there's a chance he might have broken his word to the girl and said, no way, I'm not going to behead John. But because he was in front of all of the bigwigs and all of his friends, he wanted to impress them and not lose face with them. He went ahead and followed through and said, okay, I said you could have whatever you wanted. Go get John's head and bring it here. I think the reason I have a soft spot for that, or, or there's at least this twinge of like, Oof, man, I know what that feels like. Man, perhaps you found yourself in similar situations where in less mature years, younger years perhaps, you've compromised moral convictions. Maybe you've been at a point where you knew what the right thing to do was but maybe it was because of the people you were around or the situation you were in socially or maybe because your family didn't go that way or whatever the case might be, you compromised yourself and you went in a direction where you, where you just went, I know this isn't right, but I'm too embarrassed to do what is right at that moment. I know I can, I can confess to that multiple times in my life, literally chickening out of situations and choosing to do something wrong Simply because I didn't want to stand up for what was right. It was too embarrassing. And I don't know what it is about us as humans, why that glitch is there, where even if we know what is right, we're embarrassed by it. Like, like we're Christians. We have Jesus on our side. Like the God of all creation is the one who's telling us, no, you have authority and you have power and you have gifts and you have strength. Like that's what he's telling us. And yet when confronted with, the political machine of the day or the values of the culture, somehow we're just like, should I really say something, right? I'm just, I don't know if I say I'm a Jesus person or I love Jesus, like, uh, 
know, they're going to be weird with me. And we don't like that uncomfortableness. We don't like to sit in that. It's one of my favorite phrases of Julie's. Like when something's hard and with kiddos or life, she'll say, sometimes you just got to sit in it for a while. That's a good, that's a good description of it because it doesn't feel good. But at the end of it, we're thankful because we know it was the right thing to do. Sometimes we got to just sit in that weird feeling of like, this is not going to be fun, but I got to stand up for what's right. I got to take a stand in the same way that John the Baptist took a stand. I got to say what is morally right. I have to make the decision to live that way and be able to express why I live that way. That's, that's, the, that's the whole thing right there. And I think as we move forward as a fellowship and as people, as we walk with Jesus, boy, I think that has to be a big piece for us is to help each other learn and grow in how to express why we believe what we believe. I think that's a big part of discipleship. We got to get the nuts and bolts. We got to get the doctrine down. We got to get the, the, the belief down and understand what that is. But I think we also need to be able to explain why it is we believe those things and why it is that we live the way that we live. Why don't I do X, Y, and Z? Why do I do church and fellowship and prayer and worship and all those things? I have to be able to explain those things. I think that the, the conviction of that ultimately comes from Jesus. Last scripture for the evening, Matthew chapter 7. If you want to turn there, great. Uh, if not, I'll read it to you, no problem. But Matthew chapter 7... Jesus is, this is a huge section of scripture and there's so much here to, to, to dive in and understand, but there's something specifically that he says in verse 13. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. And if you read the whole thing in all of its context, it's a pretty fight, frightening dissertation in, in, in some sense. But in verse 13, Jesus specifically says, Enter by the narrow gate speaking of eternal life and speaking about our ultimate resting place. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Scripture oftentimes has more than one context or meaning. When we look at this from the perspective of eternal life, life after death, it's a very true and apt analogy. The pathway to hell, the gate to hell, is wide open and a lot of people go there. It's really easy to get to hell. But the path that leads to life, eternal life, if you will, is very narrow. There's only one way to get there. It's through believing in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not just believing it, but submitting yourself to Jesus' authority. That's the only way to get to life eternal. Now, taken from a temporal view, an earthly view as well, same thing is true. Like, it's so easy to find something that can feed your flesh. It's so easy to find something that makes you feel good for a moment, but ends up in your ultimate destruction. Right? Everything in moderation. A little bit of anything, it could be okay. It's fine, right? But taken to an extreme, gone too far, man, 
stuff starts to destroy us, whether that's drugs and alcohol or sexual promiscuity or pride or greed or whatever those things are, that stuff will end up with our destruction in the life that we have now to actually live the abundant life that Jesus talks about. It's still narrow. There's some very specific guardrails that are set up for us to say, do this and don't do this so that we experience the life that Jesus has for us and the thing that he wants for us. And so the reason this is so frightening is is just because it has both of those contexts. And then that's where Jesus then talks about the tree and its fruit. Right after he talks about destruction and life, he says, you can tell which way a person's going. He changes the analogy to fruit or the metaphor to trees and fruit. But he says, you can tell which way a person's going. You can tell whether they're producing good fruit or bad fruit. That'll tell you whether they're heading towards death or life. And I think as we see in Mark's gospel, that's how the disciples went out into the world with that knowledge. They went out with that understanding and they had watched not just Jesus, but they had watched John the Baptist as well. And they obviously knew what was happening to him because when they had heard all of these things, um, when they had heard all of these things in verse pardon me, uh, 29, when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The disciples were watching John as well and watching how strong he was in what he said, but also what he did. That becomes an example for them. And later on in Acts chapter 5, they, the disciples there are very strong in saying that they should obey God rather than man. They made the declaration and statement that, listen, whatever God tells us to do, that's what we're going to do, regardless of what mankind says. I think that should be an inspiration for us. I think it should be an encouragement to us. I think it should build us up and and cause this faith that we have in Jesus to be rooted just a little bit deeper, perhaps, than it was before. To be willing to, to, to stand up sometimes just to ourselves, right? Some of our greatest enemies are within us, within our minds, within our hearts, within our bodies. Sometimes we're our worst enemy yeah and sometimes we just have to stand up to ourselves and say nope i'm not going to do the thing that i'm even telling myself i want to do i'm going to say no and i'm going to stand up and root myself deeply in jesus and pursue the thing that puts god at the center and not me